Blog Talk Radio. show everybody welcome to the show so today uh, I'm going to kick it off with Joe Biden is uh, he's doing some things on Afghanistan that are commendable so he's pulling he pulled troops out of the uh, Bagram Air Force Base which is the biggest base in Afghanistan where we do most of our operations from Um, and so he does that and then all the sto- as predicted, all the media stories are framed from the pro-war perspective of, oh, my God, things are going to fall apart. What happens if they fall apart? We should go back in or we should be ready to go back in. So the media is going to prod him from a pro-war perspective. We're going to talk about that. Uh, Trump also makes the show today in two ways. Number one, has he made his mind up on 2024 run? Uh, is what's going on with the Trump Organization tax fraud? There was a case that came out not too long ago on that. Uh, Weisselberg, his CFO, is, um, is in some hot water. We'll talk about that. Mansions in the show today. Later on in the show, we also have an amazing story on climate change that will absolutely make you lose hope, unfortunately. Um, we have a CIA psycho argues to bomb Iran on Fox News. And I will also be... I'll also be um, talking about a a potential vaccine for depression. Vaccine for depression. Um, That might, at some point in the near future, be coming out. And guess what? It would be based on psychedelic medicine. Without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Oh, and did I mention I'm going to maybe be uh, reacting to my first ever secular talk video? I'll give you guys. I haven't watched it since I fucking did it. Um, which was 2008, so yeah, there's, uh, 
<laughs> that should be fun. That should be interesting. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Here we go. So a few days ago, we got the news that um, Bagram Air Force Base in Afghanistan, which is, I believe, the U.S.'s biggest base there, um, it's now empty. So we've withdrawn fully from that Air Force Base. And look, this is good. This means that there is a drawdown going on in Afghanistan. Biden deserves credit for the drawdown. Of course, we need to wait and see just how much of a drawdown there is. Like, is he going to keep some number of contractors on the ground? Is he going to keep some number of residual forces on the ground to train the Afghanistan government? These are all yet to be seen. But listen, you got to be fair. you got to be objective. Credit where credit is due. At least there is a drawdown going on, and it's real, and it's real. We left our biggest base. So um, that's something that massive credit for. I don't care if Trump had done that. I would have given him credit for it, but he didn't do it. It happened under Biden. Um, so the media is now taking that story, and they're doing what is effectively – fake adversarial journalism. And when I say that, what I mean is, instead of going after Biden from a pro-peace perspective, from a left-wing perspective, from a non-interventionist perspective, from the perspective of what the American people want, which is to get out of Afghanistan, they do the exact opposite. So what they do is run a bunch of stories about how, oh my goodness, now that we're leaving our biggest base, it's getting messy over there, and it's getting ugly over there, and the Taliban has taken over a, a number of places that they didn't have control of before, and they're basically feeding the narrative that us getting out of Afghanistan is bad and is leading to terrible outcomes, and um, the underlying implication is the responsible, reasonable thing to do would have been to stay there. Now, notice something. When we're there... They don't do a lot of rigorous journalism and investigative reporting on the ground about all the negative consequences of us being there. They don't really do much of that. They just sort of leave it as is and don't talk about it much when we're occupying the country, as if occupying the country is the default. So now that he's pulling out, they're sort of going after him for beginning to draw down and pull out. So um, Biden did a press conference for the 4th of July and the media wanted to ask some questions about this issue of Afghanistan. Let's see how Biden responded. No. No, we're, we're, on, we're on track exactly as to where we expect it to be. But we just, I wanted to make sure there was enough, quote, running room that we, we could get wouldn't be able to do it all to September. There'll still be some full forces left, but it's a rational drawdown with our allies, and it's making, uh, so there's no, nothing uh, unusual about it. Are you worried that the Afghan government might fall? I mean, we're hearing about the Taliban taking more and more districts. Look, we're in that war for 20 years, 20 years. And uh, I think I met with uh, the Afghan government here in, in the White House, in the Oval, I think they have the capacity to be able to sustain the government. They're going to have to be down the road, more negotiations, I suspect. But uh, I, am, uh, I am concerned 
that they deal with the internal issues that they have to be able to generate the kind of support they need nationwide to maintain the government. Uh, uh, I want to talk about happy things, man. If there is evidence that Kabul is, is threatened, with some of the intelligence reports have suggested it could be in six months or thereabouts, do you think you've got the capability to help provide any kind of air support, military support to them to, to keep the capital safe, even if the U.S. troops are obviously fully out by that time? We have uh, worked out an over-horizon capacity that we can be value-added, but the Afghans are going to have to be able to do it themselves with the Air Force they have, which are helping them maintain. Well, I'm not going to ask any more questions on Afghanistan. Look, Fourth of July. I'm concerned that you guys are asking me questions that I'll answer next week, but I'm, this is a holiday weekend. I'm going to celebrate it. There's great things happening. Economy's growing faster than any time in 40 years. So, of course, right-wing media is taking that last part where he's like, no, I'm done talking about Afghanistan. Let's move on. And they're framing this as like, bah, see, Biden doesn't want to answer tough, fair questions. This is ridiculous. And uh, they're going after him for that. This is an issue where I totally agree with Biden. Listen, he answered a bunch of the questions on Afghanistan. And he basically was like, I don't want to answer these questions anymore. And, by the way, the questions are bullshit because they're framed from a pro-war perspective. So let's go through them. Um, The first one is, this one's the most neutral one. This person says, is the drawdown going to be done in the next few days? Okay, so that one's fine. That's fair. You know, I'll give it a pass. It's just a question about what's going to happen. And, you know, I don't even really remember what his answer was, but it's not memorable. Um, Then we get, this is where it gets really bad. Are you worried that the Afghan government might fall? The Taliban is taking more and more districts. So, again, you're going to sense the trend here. The trend is, I'm going to ask you a question that implies that, like, you should definitely go back in or be ready to go back in if need be. And, listen, I love Biden's response there. He was like, we were there for 20 years. So, in other words, it's like, what do you want? What more do you want? What do you want us to do? You want to stay there for 30 years, 40 years, 100 years? You want to spend more U.S. taxpayer money? Is that what you want to do? You want to have more of our men and women die? What do you want to do, rebuild Kandahar and Kabul instead of Flint, Michigan, which we desperately need to do? So there's a little bit, this is where you start to to sense a little bit of a hint of like, fuck off in Biden's voice. Um, Then he's asked another question. He says that Afghanistan basically needs to deal with the internal issues to get the support of the people that they need to maintain the government. That's a very kind way of him saying, we're not going to go back in. I don't want to go back in. This is their problem. And if the government's under siege and they can't maintain control, well, then they should probably do the things that would get them more popular support and control. And by the way, on that front, I think you're totally right. The Afghanistan government, even though obviously they're better than the Taliban, they're deeply corrupt. And so, you know, there's some support among the people for the Taliban, as weird as that sounds. Also, by the way, um, it's not a pretty picture. We've allied with people there in Afghanistan and Pakistan who are warlords. And a lot of these warlords have child sex slaves. You know how I know that? Our own soldiers blew the whistle on it and said our allies had child sex slaves. So don't ask me to pick between warlords who have child sex slaves, a super corrupt government, and the Taliban, 
What I'm going to say is, hey, that's their business. I want nothing to do with it. And effectively, that's exactly what Joe Biden is saying here in so many words. Um, and then you get this question. Uh, this one is just, you know, this is laying it all out there. If there is evidence that Kabul is threatened, do we have the capability to provide air or military support? So if the Taliban keeps gaining more and more territory, and eventually it looks like Kabul might go down and be under Taliban rule, do we have the capability to provide any sort of support to the Afghan government to fight back the Taliban? That's the question. And, you know, I think that's where he effectively punts. And he's like, enough. He also said something like, we have the capability to do value-added, some value-added capacity. I don't even know what that means. But they should do it on their own, basically. Yeah, listen, I'm totally with Biden on this. Because I think these questions are completely illegitimate. Why are you, why is every question phrased from like a, it's so dumb that we're getting out perspective. Why is that the case? Why is every question, you know, it has the underlying assumption that it's our responsibility to make sure that the Afghanistan government, you know, stays in the hands of the people we want it to be in. I just think this shows you the problem with U.S. media. They're not adversarial. They're pro-establishment. And whenever they are adversarial, they're adversarial from the right, from a pro-empire perspective, from a pro-war perspective. You know, there's so many good questions you could have asked from a a left perspective, from a non-intervention perspective, from a pro-peace perspective. How many times did you guys hear the question asked in our 20 years in Afghanistan, what even is our goal anymore? When can we declare victory and come home? Like, why are we still there? Because you guys remember, we were told early on in the case of Iraq, it was for Saddam Hussein. In the case of Afghanistan, it's to get Osama bin Laden and wipe out Al-Qaeda. Saddam Hussein is dead. Osama bin Laden is dead. And Al-Qaeda is largely decimated in the region. There's less than 100 Al-Qaeda operatives in Afghanistan. That's not me speaking. That's our own intelligence agencies speaking. The Taliban is still there, but the Taliban is more of a guerrilla army. They're interested in their own domestic politics in the region. Now, that's not me saying they're good people, but that is me saying they're not a threat to bomb Cleveland, bitch. So what are we doing there? What are we doing there? And then you get into the real motivations. How many times have you heard a question about, hey, does the trillion dollars worth of mineral wealth that's in Afghanistan, does that have something to do with why we're there? What about the opium, the opium fields that we've literally protected? What What about those? Does it have anything to do with the military-industrial complex and the fact that war is very profitable and you have all these Raytheon, Boeing, Honeywell, Halliburton, go down the list. You have all of these corporations that get phenomenally wealthy from us being there. Isn't there a perverse incentive that we're there? How many times have you heard a question about what I just told you guys before, that a lot of the people we allied with are warlords who have child sex slaves? How many times have you heard a question about that? They're never critical from a pro-peace perspective, ever, ever. And so this is the kind of stuff that you get. The underlying implication being, well, obviously you should go back in if the Taliban is gaining more and more territory. Obviously you should do that. Nonsense. I mean, can can you also turn around and make the argument, well, obviously if warlords with child sex slaves are in control of many of the regions, we should go in and fight the warlords with child sex slaves. But hold on, those are our allies. Those are people we want to have control over certain areas. So it's almost like we're not doing this for freedom and democracy and and human rights and all the nonsense reasons that they give us. 
So, I mean, I totally side with Biden on this. You know, the polls show the American people want us out of there. We live in what's supposed to be uh, a constitutional republic and a representative democracy. So this is, I would have swatted aside those questions too. Maybe I wouldn't have been as short as he is. Uh, I would have been probably more forceful, more aggressive, and, and I would have laid out the anti-war case better. But yeah, after a while, he was like, enough, enough. I don't, I don't want to hear this. He's doing what the American people want on this front, at least in terms of the drawdown. Will he actually fully withdraw? That's yet to be seen. Again, I'm only calling balls and strikes here. I'll let you know where we bottom out in terms of the withdrawal. I'm sure there's going to be some contractors still there. I'm sure there's going to be some uh, people there to help train the Afghanistan government. So that I will criticize if and when we get there. But right now with the drawdown, listen, leaving that Air Force base was a wonderful thing. And instead of the media, you know, reflecting the will of the American people or being critical from a non-interventionist perspective, they're being critical from a pro-war perspective. And it's bullshit. It's bullshit. And by the way, you also see now all of the incentives of the establishment at work. This is why it takes somebody who's actually principled and has beliefs in order to lead. This is why. Because you're going to feel all the pressures to do the wrong thing every step of the way. You know? And that goes for almost every issue. When you're talking about the issue of Wall Street, you're going to have lobbyists, you're going to have donors in the room, you're going to have people telling you, hey, deregulate the shit out of them and bail them out if need be. Let them privatize the profits and socialize the losses. This is your job to represent them like that. That's where all the pressure is. That's what all your advisors will say. And they'll come up with these rationalizations that make it sound like that's the intelligent thing to do. Oh, the economy will collapse if you don't do it, so go ahead and do it. Let them loot the treasury. This is what it is on foreign policy. All of your generals, all of your, you know, most of the time, the intelligence agencies are going to say, stay there. When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You're going to have the media is going to push you in a pro-war direction. Uh, the opposition party is going to do that. The other Democratic leaders are going to do that. So this is why it takes a, re- a person of real moral character to draw a line and be like, no, you're all wrong, fuck off, and now I'm going to make a proactive anti-war argument. And so, you know, it's funny that they're trying to attack him over this. It, I mean, he's right. Stop asking shitty questions from a pro-war perspective on Afghanistan. If anything, the real criticism should be, why are we not out of there fully even sooner? And the real question should be, wait, how many residual forces are you going to leave there? How many contractors are going to stay there? How many people are you going to leave there to train the Afghanistan government? How many? How many? And then, you know, if slash when Biden answers that, you say, shouldn't you get fully out? Because that's what the American people want to do. And at this late date, do we even have a right to be there anymore? What even is our mission? So the media is terrible. This is a rare instance where I sympathize with Biden. Um, He could have been more forceful to make the anti-war argument. But uh, swatting aside absurd questions like this, totally for it. Okay. All right, next. President Trump, former President Trump, has apparently made up his mind about running in 2024. Watch this. You're not gonna answer, but I have to ask. Where are you in the process of, or have, let me ask you this, without giving the answer what the answer is, have you made up your mind? Yes. 
I think you got it right. Yeah. When you look, you know, it's funny because I've known you 25 years. I remember when you were first talking about running, and we actually argued. Remember we'd argue about certain things in Iraq and, and certain wars and everything? And then you became president. And I remember when I supported you, I said, I, I said he will govern as a conservative. And the people didn't understand. You really governed as conservative as any president in the modern day. Because that is your core belief. And actually, John, you have known me for a long time, and my views have never really changed. So um, he says yes, he made his mind up, but he doesn't give the answer as to what it is. I think the answer is yes, he's going to run. Now, here's why I say that. Since I'm a political junkie and a loser and a nerd, um, I was, within the last week or two, I was watching some Bill O'Reilly clips. I know, I'm like the last person left on the planet who does that. He, he's doing a web show and there were some clips that popped up in, in, for recommended on YouTube. I watched some of them. Here's why I think the answer is yes, that Trump is running. Bill O'Reilly said, and he went to go meet with Trump, I believe at Mar-a-Lago, within the first like you know month or two after Trump was out of the White House. And very, very casually, as a side point, Bill O'Reilly said, you know, the president is in high spirits, he's feeling good. Um, and then he said something along the lines of he's really looking forward to and, and wants to run in 2024. Now, that's big news, right? But he just said it casually and, like, glossed over it, um, and it was a side point, which, by the way, I think actually makes it more believable because it wasn't like, let me tell everybody the news I'm breaking, here's, like, the main story. No, it was in the middle of a conversation more about how Trump and Bill O'Reilly are going to go on a tour together. Um, but as a side point, he's just like, yeah, he's, you know, he's in high spirits and he's really looking forward to uh, running in 2024. What? And so that's why you've seen a lot of these statements. Trump is teasing 2024, 2024. And he's actually given a little wink and a nod to the QAnon people. And sometimes he says 2024 or sooner. So in other words, am I going to be reinstated as president in like August, as a lot of the QAnon people believe? I mean, it's amazing that anybody believes that, but there are people who believe that. So, you know, he's trying his best to stay relevant as much as he can while being kicked off of many social media platforms. And, um, yeah, I, I think the answer is yes. I think he wants to run. Now, if he doesn't run, it's very possible he doesn't because this is a long time away from now. But if he doesn't run, um, I think he would have to change his mind on the side of, well, now I don't want to run, you know. But as, as of right now, I think he thinks I'm definitely running. Again, it's a long time away. He's really old. Who knows what can happen between now and then. But uh, I think he wants to run again. I do. And that gets to a lot of questions, man, because we'll get to another story on this later. The top, or some of the top, Democratic contenders against him, let's just say it is certainly not a guarantee that Trump would lose in 2024. It's very possible he wins. It is. It absolutely is. Now, you know, is, is, will the anti-Trump sentiment still be as strong in 2024 as it was in 2020? Because he does generate a, a strong opposition as well, along with support. I don't know yet, and it's hard to read, read the tea leaves from this far out, but um, it's nothing to scoff at is the point. Him running again would be nothing to scoff at, and I think it would be almost a guarantee that he wins the Republican primary. 
you know, so he might as well not even have it. I, I mean, I'm kidding, definitely have it, but if he does run, it's like, who's going to overtake him? Fucking Nikki Haley? She has the personality of a dirty diaper. Never said anything interesting in her life. Like, seriously, who's going to, Chris Christie, who's just diet Trump? I mean, it's just not going to happen. So um, Mitt Romney, robot man, you know, defend, big defender of the Republican establishment, it's just not going to happen. So anyway, I think that uh, he made his mind up and he wants to run. Now, the whole interview, by the way, is so sycophantic. Oh, my God. Sean, drop the cock and balls, bro, please, for the love of God. I left that second part in there because it's too perfect where Sean is saying, and I think he's right about this, that, hey, I remember talking to people and saying, you're going to be a very conservative president. And Trump effectively is like, yeah. And it's true. He did govern like a very conservative president. And that's my biggest bone to pick with him is that he basically was George W. Bush on steroids. His biggest legislative accomplishment was what? It was the 2017 tax cuts, which overwhelmingly went to the wealthy. 83% of them went to the top 1%. I mean, George W. Bush on steroids. Let the neocons run his foreign policy, with only a handful of exceptions. North Korea, where they tried to make peace in some way, and at least we didn't attack them. I'm happy about that. But everything else, Iran, continuing all the other wars, even though he pretends like, you know, we got out of them or he was trying to get out of them. Well, if you were trying to get out of them, you got stonewalled, and the generals won, son. So... I wouldn't exactly be taking a victory lap over that. But, yeah, the list goes on and on. Massive deregulation, gutting the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, all this stuff. Um, So, yeah, he is very conservative, and that's the problem. And it's interesting that, you know, depending on the forum, Trump will obviously change his tune about how he is as a politician, how he governed. He's with Sean Hannity here, so he's got to be, you know, Mr. Conservative. And, um, yeah, that's what we're dealing with. That's what we're dealing with. I think that's an accurate description of him. So there you have it. Obviously, it's too early to tell either way, but my reading of the situation is he wants to run. Whether or not he does is yet to be seen because it's so far away. So a couple days ago, we got the news that an arrest was made of one of the top Trump executives because there was tax fraud going on at the organization. Now, when I read the headlines, I was like, oh, shit, here we go. This is what I'm talking about. Because I do think they have quite a bit of dirt on him when it comes to his business practices. I don't think that this is like Russiagate, for example, where it was mostly bullshit. And they couldn't really get anything on Russia specifically. But when it comes to run-of-the-mill corruption, when it comes to tax fraud or insurance fraud or any of a number of financial crimes, I think there's smoke and there's fire there. So I read the headlines, I was excited, but then when I read the details, I was a little underwhelmed as to what they had so far, or at least what's being released so far. So here's a a CNN segment talking about the Trump Organization tax fraud. Let's watch, and then I'll break it down. Now to the extraordinary charges against former President Trump's organization and its top executive. Prosecutors accused the company and its chief financial officer of a 15-year tax scheme. At the heart of it all... Investigators say the company's CFO, Alan Weisselberg, evaded taxes on nearly $2 million of income. That income, they say, was in the form of rent and utilities and other payments that went completely untaxed. Former President's son, Eric Trump, who also serves as the executive vice president of the Trump Organization, tried to downplay the charges. This was his framing. Well, these are employment perks. These are, you know, these are, um, you know, a, a corporate car, which everybody has. I guarantee you there's people on this network that have corporate cars. I guarantee you there's people in every company.
company in the country that has corporate vehicles. This is what they're going after. This isn't a criminal matter. Joining me now, staff writer for the Atlantic, David Frum, former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams. Elliot, so they're acknowledging it. Yes. <laughs> and I think President Trump did something similar in the statement that he put out here. You know, they're saying it's not a criminal matter. These are just perks. You're a lawyer. What's right. your take on okay. that? Well, well, first, my take is don't confess to a federal crime on national television. I would yeah. advise you not to do that, anybody, if you're listening. Um, so, yes, it's, these are perks. Um, company cars are perks. Your gym is a perk. Your parking pass is a perk. You've got to pay taxes on it when it's income. Now, there's a little bit of complexity as to the, the corporate car question because mileage over when you're, when you're just driving for your personal uh, benefit versus mileage when you're driving for work is taxed a little bit differently. But at the end of the day, you have to pay taxes on them. And Alan Weisselberg, you're talking about $1.6 million, million dollars in untaxed income. That is a serious amount. It is unlawful. It brings liability to both the company and the individual. It's serious stuff, and he's downplaying it. Yeah. All right, so um, as of the stuff that they have right now, and they just ran through it there, I am underwhelmed by this because, like, I look at that, and I'm like, you had all this time. And I'm sure there's so much evidence out there, and this is the strongest case that you could make. Now, here's the thing, though. We really don't know. We really don't know all of the stuff they have yet. I think things might keep coming out uh, in a drip, drip, drip kind of fashion. Um, And here's another theory, by the way, and this one I think is important to note. It may be the case that they threatened, uh, you know, Trump's, one of Trump's top executives, uh, Alan Weisselberg. They threatened him and they're trying to get him to flip on Trump because he knows where all the bodies are buried. He knows everything that went on with the finances for the Trump organization, probably even better than Trump does. So they threaten Weisselberg with this sort of stuff, you know, uh, getting him on these tax fraud charges, which are sort of minor in the grand scheme of things. But um, they pressured him with this to try to get him to flip on Trump. Now, the fact that he was taken out in handcuffs, leads me to believe he actually hasn't flipped on Trump. He hasn't flipped on Trump, which would tell me that perhaps they really can't build a solid enough case without Allen if he doesn't cooperate, and uh, he's not cooperating, at least not yet. So in a weird way, this story has the potential to be good for the Trump family, because if he doesn't flip, then they probably can't get enough evidence, and he might skate on everything. Um, and Weisselberg might go down just for this specific issue, which isn't as broad or as damning and wide-reaching as it potentially could be. Now, having said all that, that's one theory. The outlet Just Security is saying this, quote, New York state fraud, conspiracy, and grand larceny statutes are at play here as well. Double bookkeeping, deceptive, deceptive bookkeeping, and fraudulent mischaracterization of employee compensation, and they say this is all coming. Okay, that's a lot of stuff. New York State, fraud, conspiracy, and grand larceny, double bookkeeping, deceptive bookkeeping, fraudulent mischaracterization of employee compensation. That's what's being discussed there, I think. Um, But the rest of that stuff hasn't come out yet, and they're saying it very well may come out. But again, we don't know yet. We don't know. But at least as of what we see now, here and now, not all that uh, exciting or interesting or damning, in my opinion. There's a hell of a lot more there for the Trump organization. They're absolutely, guys, 
you can't be in real estate in New York City in the 1980s and not have deep mafia connections. In fact, we know he does. His lawyer, I believe his name was Roy Cohn, he was the lawyer for all the top um, mafia guys as well. There's no doubt there's worse stuff than this going on. Zero doubt. But there's been reporting on worse stuff that they've done. One of the things that I tell you guys all the time is he inflates the values of his assets, inflates the value of his assets when, uh, when it suits his purpose, when he's trying to talk about how much he's worth, right? But then he'll turn around and say that his assets or his property or whatever, it's worth like half of what he was claiming five minutes ago when he wants to pay a lower tax bill. That's just one example of a million things that he's done. Never mind the, you know, they do these gross um, accounting tricks, which are either illegal or, or legal in the sense that it's a giant loophole where they funnel money to different members of the family and, and report it as a deduction. There's, there's real questions about how his golf courses are even viable because every single year at all of his golf courses, he hemorrhages money. He loses millions all the time but they're still open. How is that possible? Is he just operating a loss every single year? And of course, you know, the, the speculation is that's not really what they're all about, that perhaps there's some, some kind of money laundering going on and it's funded in other ways. You know, now that one's just speculation, but I have seen pretty convincing reporting on a lot of these things, you know, and the difficulty is, of course, you have to prove it in court beyond a reasonable doubt and you need evidence to build the case. Um, but is anybody really surprised that this guy is scheming? I mean, we already know he had to pay out for Trump University because, I mean, it was a fraud. <laughs> and so he had to pay millions out for that. He, would, he called it a university. Legally, he's not allowed to call it a university. He, um, he promised certain things, didn't deliver on those things. Um, and it was, I believe, what was it called? It was not a pyramid scheme. I forget the the term that they use, but it involves upselling. Like you buy something and then every time you buy something, they say, well, then you've got to get this other thing. And you upsell, 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 upsell. You get this like bullshit degree. And um, there were, it just was a, it was a fraudulent practice is what it was. So are we really surprised that this guy had other things that were like that? I mean, remember, another great example. Remember at the, uh, at the end of the election when he lost, Trump and all of his people were sending out these emails, which were telling his donor base, we're going to fight this and we're going to win. And we need you to donate to help us fight back against this. And um, what did they do? They put fine print at the bottom of these pitches that basically say something to the effect of your first X number of dollars. And I think it was hundreds or thousands of dollars. Um, that's actually going to pay off the Trump campaign debt and other things. And you have to give over a certain amount in order for any of the money to actually go towards the legal battles. And they were making promises, of course, that they couldn't keep. I mean, they lost 60 court cases, bro. They lost 60 court cases. And so, I mean, this is, again, classic Trump. It's just everything is sort of misleading. Everything is, um, everything is sketchy at best. Haven't even discussed the fact that he took tremendous amount of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars from Saudi Arabia. He took it through his hotel in D.C., and then he turned around, and what did he do? Gave them a multi-billion dollar weapons deal. 
um, sat idly by while they killed Jamal Khashoggi as they do a genocide in Yemen, vetoed us getting out of the aiding the genocide in Yemen. You know, never mind Jared Kushner taking a tremendous amount of money from Israeli banks and doing their bidding. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little confusing here because I'm mixing a bunch of different issues. Some of these things are political in nature only. Some of these things are, you know, Trump business issues and business problems. But either way, my point is, where there's smoke, there's fire. And um, it's just a matter of, can you prove these various things? As of right now, like I said, the case is sort of underwhelming if this is all they got. But they very well may have more. We're just going to have to wait and see. But, guys, the worst part of it is this. If Weisselberg doesn't flip, then maybe, maybe they can't really get him on anything. If Weisselberg doesn't flip, maybe they can't get him on anything. And, you know, that might mean game, set, match, because maybe there's a reason why Weisselberg doesn't flip. Maybe the Trump people have dirt on him or something. I don't know. But um, this, is, this could just be the beginning. And, again, I want to be clear, this is not coming from somebody who's an alarmist. You guys know all my commentary on Russiagate. thought it was bullshit. I told you it was bullshit. And what did Mueller end up getting at the end of it? When it comes to Russia specifically, Dickie McGee's act. Now, they did get you know, Manafort and others on corruption and, and crimes like that, and I'm glad they got them on that. But that had nothing to do with Russia. And so when I thought a claim was bullshit, I said it was bullshit. Here's an instance where I think they probably have real dirt. It's just a matter of is it airtight enough to take the former president down in court. And they probably got a, it's a tough mountain to climb, man, but they're working on it. It's yet to be seen whether or not they'll, they'll get it done. But I do think he's very likely guilty of a lot of the things that they're looking into. All right, next. Joe Manchin went on Fox News, and uh, he, it was the most Joe Manchin segment I've ever seen in my life. He's basically going to shred all hope for Biden here, particularly when it comes to infrastructure, or at least getting an infrastructure job done right. Take a look. If the reconciliation bill they're envisioning on the progressive side is four to six trillion, you're not going with that. I don't think I could ever get there to that. I don't think that we, I don't, not unless we just throw caution to the wind on the tax code and you care less, are we competing in a global market and are we being fair uh, that you just throw uh, that out the window? That, that seems to me just uh, totally out of the ballpark. So that's sticking the knife in and twisting it right there. Basically what he's saying is when it comes to the reconciliation bill, the infrastructure reconciliation bill, which would go hand in hand with the bipartisan bill, He's saying, if I agree to anything on that front, we're going to slim it the fuck down. So then, of course, that begs the question, what the hell is going to be left in it? Because naturally, all these Democrats, whether it's Cinema or Manchin or the seven or eight others who are seriously right-wing and very corporate, what are they going to agree to? Like, what can we actually get them to agree to? Because this is what's called the human infrastructure part of the infrastructure talks, and it's like a lot of very good ideas are in that. And I'm, I'm very interested to see what are the things that they could hold all of the Democrats on for that. And I don't have the answer, but it doesn't look pretty. It doesn't look like they're going to get much in that partisan reconciliation bill. And by the way, 
the bipartisan bill on infrastructure has so many problems with it that I've talked to you guys about before. It basically privatizes large swaths of our infrastructure, which is a terrible idea. And it turns it over to Wall Street, by the way, as well. Terrible idea. It has regressive taxes in there, like a gas tax, which is uh, an increase on taxes for the working class. So instead of doing the infrastructure deal and doing it properly, where if anything, you raise taxes on the wealthy to help fund it, they don't do that. They want to raise it on regular people. And by the way, that's what the Republicans fought for and corporate Democrats have agreed to. And so that blows up the whole myth that like the Republican Party is the party of tax cuts for regular people. They literally are the ones who want to raise it on regular people. Strips out all the climate change stuff, which obviously is colossally important. So I think the bipartisan bill is going to be a fraud and it's going to be way too small. The only hope for real legislation here is the partisan reconciliation bill. But this is Manchin sending a signal that if I do anything on that front, I want it to be a massively slimmed down bill, which means obviously some of the key priorities are going to be left out. Some of the key priorities, like, for example, expanding Medicare, dropping the age to the age of 60. You know, um, I think there was sort of like paid maternity leave or, or paid time off in there or something to that effect. Is any of this stuff going to make it to the final bill? I don't know. But herein lies the problem, guys. We're only as progressive as Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and those seven or eight Democrats who are against the $15 minimum wage as they allow us to be. And this is why Biden's theory of change and, um, you know, this inside game approach, this is why it's a failure, a complete failure, because if you're going to be in the position and have the power that Biden has, number one, you should believe in the right things. He doesn't believe in a lot of the right things. But number two, you have to do the LBJ approach to politics or the FDR approach to politics and really build coalitions where you can build coalitions, twist arms where you need to twist arms, do the carrot and stick approach, do anything you can to get them on board for a real left agenda, for a new New Deal type situation. And he's just not doing it. Now, by the way, in the same interview there, um, Manchin goes on to do more debt and deficit fear-mongering. Oh, God. Which, again, is a, that's a, a sign. The sign is, I don't want to do much more at all. I don't want to do much more at all. Because I already established I don't want to raise taxes too much. Definitely doesn't want to do it on the wealthy. And so everything has to be paid for. And if we can't pay for it that way, then what, what do you want me to tell you? I'm not going to be for anything that's not deficit neutral and that adds to the deficit or the debt. So that's, he's letting everybody know right there, I'm not going to do too much. Um, the other thing is he reaffirms his position on the filibuster. And is basically like, I don't really want to budge on that either. He's asked in the interview. He's playing footsie in the interview and is basically asked the question, like, why not change parties and become a Republican? And, you know, he's effectively like, tee hee hee, tee hee hee. I don't even really think the labels or believe in labels. I'm just going to do the things that I think are right for my home state of West Virginia. That is the biggest thing I take issue with because it's not true. If you look at the polls, the people of West Virginia, for example, want that $15 minimum wage and they want you to fight for it. The people of West Virginia are pretty economically left, very pro-union, pro-worker. Um, they'd be for, you know, a lot of the furthest left proposals on the table when it comes to economics. Sure, they're socially conservative, you know, pro-gun, uh, anti-abortion, and things of that nature. But what does Joe Manchin do? Joe Manchin, you know, serves Wall Street, deregulates them, fights for corporations, and then pretends like this is what the good people of West Virginia want. That is total bullshit. So this is Joe Manchin effectively, yet again, um, 
shredding any hope for Biden's agenda moving forward on Fox News. That's what he's doing. So now I say to Joe, reel your boy in, son. Go reel him in. But the thing is, I don't think Joe can because Joe at least half agrees with Manchin. He at least half agrees with him. So here we are. They're going to drag their feet. And I I predicted this a while ago, but, yeah, I do think that what they're trying to do here with um, the bipartisan infrastructure deal with a partisan reconciliation deal all on infrastructure, I don't see any way in which it succeeds. I don't see how you could hold a coalition on it with the way they're going about it. I also just think the, um, the bipartisan one is bullshit, and I wouldn't vote for it because I don't want to privatize our infrastructure, and I don't want to raise taxes on working people. So I would vote for the partisan one, they, you know, assuming the details are half decent, but the bipartisan one I wouldn't vote for. So I think that they're not going about this the right way, and it was sort of a pipe dream from the very beginning, and um, we're going to see how it unfolds from here on out, but definitely don't have high hopes for any of it. So this is a big story that blew up a few days ago, and I definitely wanted to comment on it because um, there's a lot to say. U.S. track and field star Shikari Richardson will be suspended for one month after testing positive for THC, the main psychoactive component of marijuana. The result means she cannot compete in the 100-meter race at the Tokyo Olympics. She was seen as the best U.S. contender for a gold medal in the event. Quote, don't judge me because I am human, Richardson said in an interview on Friday with NBC's Today Show. I'm you. I just happen to run a little faster. The 21-year-old accepted the month-long period of ineligibility for the failed drug test beginning on June 28th, according to the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. The rules are clear, but this is heartbreaking on many levels. Hopefully her acceptance of responsibility and apology will be an important example to us all that we can successfully overcome our regrettable decisions, despite the costly consequences of this one to her. The agency CEO, Travis T. Tigert, said in a statement, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency said it reduced Richardson's suspension to one month, the minimum allowed by the rules because her marijuana use was unrelated to her athletic performance and occurred outside of competition and also because she successfully completed a related counseling program. A counseling program. Richardson said she used marijuana after learning that her biological mother had died just a week before the Olympic trials. It was difficult to have to go in front of the world and put on a face and hide my pain, she told today. Who am I to tell you how to cope? Richardson used the drug in Oregon, NBC Sports reported, where it is legal for recreational use. The U.S. Anti-Doping Agency considers THC, which is, which is in cannabis, marijuana, and hashish, a substance of abuse and prohibits it in competition. Richardson cannot run the 100-meter race at the Olympics because the positive test disqualified her result clocked at team trials. USA Track and Field has not clarified whether she might still be allowed to run the, the four-times 100-meter relay, which is scheduled after her suspension ends. 
In April, she became the sixth fastest woman to run the 100-meter dash, recording a time of 10.72 seconds at a competition in Miramar, Miramar, Florida. Uh, In a statement, USA Track and Field said Richardson's suspension was incredibly unfortunate and devastating for everyone involved. Yeah, so, um, I mean, listen, do I even need to comment? You guys know exactly what I'm going to say about this, but at, at every level, this is just such an absurd and silly and dumb story. The idea that this is even like helping her performance, I think, is nonsense. And they even seem to admit that. So if it doesn't help her performance, so it's not cheating, what's the problem? What's the issue? What's the issue here? Oh, she had a substance that she's not allowed to have, but why is she not allowed to have it? If it doesn't help her performance, why is she not allowed to have it? Well, she's not allowed to have it because it's wrong. Well, it's not against the law where she had it. And not that she even needs this other excuse, but it's a pretty damn good one. Her mother died, and she's like, fuck it, I'm getting high. I want to tap out of reality a little bit for right now. You know, I just think this is so silly. I guess people can make the argument, well, you know, all these top athletes, they know the rules, and they have to do everything to try to not jeopardize, um, you know, their chance to compete in something like the Olympics. But, guys, the rules are supposed to reflect something about reality. The rules are supposed to be somewhat fair. You can't tell me that legally smoking weed in Oregon, legal at the state level, to be fair, um, that doing that, and it doesn't help her performance, and she was doing it, she had a damn good reason to do it because she wants to sort of escape reality for a little bit for an understandable reason. How can you tell me that this is unacceptable? Now, by the way, the initial response from Biden was classic Biden. He basically said, like, the rules are the rules. But if the rules are stupid, they shouldn't be rules. So I'm in favor of people breaking stupid rules. So, but listen, if anything, I mean, she's a martyr for this cause, but if anything, it might speed up the timeline on even more widespread acceptance of marijuana. Because I think everybody looks at this and says, this is really stupid and really dumb. And so it might make it so that eh, it's time to go back to the drawing board on a lot of these rules when it comes to substances and when it comes to these sports. You know, if this helps speed that up, then effectively she's a hero for the cause, if you think about it, you know. And uh, it sucks that she has to miss out on the 100 meter, but um, everybody in this situation knows that she's a victim. Everybody knows she's a victim. And... Wouldn't it be badass if all of the other runners smoked weed in solidarity now? And listen, I have to say, there's one aspect to this story which is even more controversial, a take of mine, which is that I even have mixed feelings on the whole, like, performance-enhancing drug stuff. Because that's so arbitrary. Caffeine is performance-enhancing, but it's not considered performance-enhancing. So you could take a lot of caffeine and have an advantage, but you're allowed to do that. Somebody who takes caffeine before the run has a much bigger advantage than Shikari did when she smoked weed a long time before she was ever involved in the competition. But the caffeine is allowed and this isn't allowed. That makes no sense. But again, that gets to my point. There's all these like pre-workout drinks which can definitely help you if you're a runner and they're legal and they're probably allowed. The caffeine, legal, allowed. There's a number of things that are legal, that are not against the rules, that give you an advantage 
um, that are allowed, but then, you know, they try to draw the line somewhere, but the line is so arbitrary. So obviously you can't fucking do steroids or whatever. Um, but I, re- I really am of the belief, now we're having a totally different conversation, but I really am of the belief that you either have to sort of allow everything, whoever wants to get the advantage, you know, by turning their body into a fucking pharmacy, by all means go right ahead. Either you allow everything or you allow nothing, like not even caffeine. Like, everybody's got to fucking wake up the same day and eat the same shit, get tested for every drug under the sun, including caffeine, and then you run it as pure as pure can be. you got to do one or the other. I really dislike this idea of, like, well, we'll draw a completely arbitrary line and say these are what the rules are and you have to abide by them just because they're the rules. No, I don't think that makes any sense. I don't think that makes any sense. So if there was justice in the world, either all the other runners would smoke in solidarity with her or they'd come out and say, this rule is stupid. We're changing the rule effective immediately, and she's allowed to run in it. You know? It's just, if, if you wouldn't punish her for having a couple glasses of tequila or getting drunk on beer or wine a couple months before, then why would you punish her for smoking some weed? And if anything, as you guys know, weed is less destructive than alcohol is as a substance. But again, one would be allowed and one wouldn't be allowed. I really dislike the deeply irrational and illogical nature of a lot of these rules and a lot of the approaches here. So, you know, I I feel nothing but bad for her, and they should change this rule immediately. They should change the laws immediately. Don't give me this bullshit about, oh, she made a mistake and this is tough for everyone. It's not tough for everybody. It's tough for her. It's not tough for, like, the U.S. doping agency or the the, Olympic Rules Committee or whatever. It's not tough for them. It's tough for her. So just change the rule because the rule is stupid, and hopefully that speeds up the timeline. But for right now, we live in this world where the rules make no sense. They're all over the place, and they're going to be enforced as is. All right. Let me do one more, and then we will take a break. So I think we have an example here of Democratic leadership finally getting a glimpse of reality and seeing the world how it is. So look at this. Democrats fear Kamala Harris can't beat any GOP in 2024, including Trump report. So this is like their light bulb moment. Like, oh, wait, what? What? We might be in deep trouble in 2024. So let me break this down for you. They say, they say it's mostly the recent scandals that are making them think that. There was something that just came out about how terrible work environment um, with her and all of her staffers, everybody's at each other's throats, there's no leadership, there's no empathy, there's no sympathy, it's just people getting thrown under the bus left and right. Um, So she's a terrible leader. She makes everybody feel uncomfortable. And then they talk about a lot of the recent gaffes, whether it's the issue going on where Biden gave her control of the border to run the border and she's said a bunch of things on that that were silly and she got criticism for and she didn't visit it for a long time. And when she did visit it, she visited the wrong part that had nothing to do with the crisis. So there's all these things that they're looking at and they're like, Jesus Christ, like she can't get anything right. And it's just endless criticism. And listen, this is somebody who the media really liked. They loved her. And now even they're like, nah, that was weird. That was weird. And that was weird. So listen, I think they have a point. But the funny thing is, I think they're looking at the wrong issues to come to the correct conclusion. Because, guys, the giveaway should have been 
the last election. Do you guys remember when she ran in the primary and came in like sixth? She had to drop out before Iowa because she didn't want to embarrass herself and ruin any prospects for a potential run. She dropped out before Iowa. At one point, she was, I'm, t- I'm a top-tier candidate. <laughs> she went from top-tier, polling among the leaders, to just imploding in no time at all. By the way, when did that happen? When she stopped even pretending to be somewhat like Bernie. Remember there was a time where she would pretend to be somewhat like Bernie, then eventually, slowly but surely, she backtracked on all the stuff that was good progressive policy, and um, her main issue in the campaign became banning Donald Trump from social media. You remember that? That became like her main thing. She would argue about it in the debates with other candidates. So she imploded all of the goodwill she'd built up, all the name recognition, the lead that she had, or the being one of the top tier candidates, that all imploded and she, then she had next to no support. No support. So she dropped out before Iowa, single digit candidate, and um, it was to avoid embarrassment. And so what's amazing to me is they didn't realize back then that, oh, this is like, she's, she has serious electoral liabilities. She does. She absolutely does. So if she runs against Trump, yeah, man, it's good. I mean, really the only thing cutting in her favor is that there is a very, very fervent anti-Trump sentiment in the country. You know what I mean? And this last election proved that. Biden's barely alive and he ended up beating Trump. And so, like, there's enough of that where you might be able to coast on that alone. People might be totally over and done with Trump's bullshit. But really, that's all she has cutting in her favor. I don't think she's good in any other way. I really don't. I really don't. I think she's totally self-obsessed. She's such a narcissist. Look at her speech after they won at the convention. If you don't believe me on that front, she uh, loves to lean into the identity nonsense. She loves to be a corporate Democrat and not be great on economic issues. And so, yeah, I mean, her versus Trump, man, that's a nail biter. I don't know what would happen. Right now, I'm inclined to say I think Trump would win, but you never really know. Is it possible to make her likable enough where you avoid a Hillary Clinton 2.0 type scenario? Or is it possible for him to self-implode enough where she could just sort of coast to the, to the victory line simply by not being him? I don't want to roll the dice on any of that, man. I don't. And the funny thing is they go even further and say she would lose to even a generic Republican. So in other words, Mitt Romney, Mike Pence, people like that, they're like the fake serious people, right? And they're like, we think she'll probably lose to them too. Oh, my God. You want to talk about a light bulb moment. That's a real light bulb moment. So they all understand this is going to be a nail biter of all nail biters if she's the nominee. And you know what the problem is, guys? People don't understand how big name recognition is in politics. They really don't. They really don't. And on name recognition alone, she's the default leader going into the next primary if Biden's not running. She is. Simply from being the VP. Now, she might squander it up front right away again, um, but politics is strange, man. And just like it was so weird that Biden held on in the last election, maybe it's possible she holds on in a primary coming up, and then we are off to the races when it comes to the general. But it's good to see the Democratic leadership is finally acknowledging some very basic realities that they should have acknowledged a long time ago. So it's too, listen, it's too soon to really say anything conclusive or definitive. If it's her versus Trump, I genuinely don't know who will win. I tend to think right now it'd probably be Trump, but I really don't know because weird things happen in politics. 
But her versus Pence or her versus Romney, I mean, that would be historically low turnout. Historically low. Because they both inspire, like, not much in not many people. So we'll see what happens, but it's interesting that the media and Democratic leadership is finally catching on to something we thought was pretty obvious. Okay. All right, guys, let's take a break. When we come back, got a bombshell story on evictions continuing even though there's an eviction moratorium. We'll talk about that and much, much more. Stay right there, y'all.
All right, bitches, we back. Let's continue. Let's continue in this bitch. All right, here we go. Jordan Chariton um, has an outlet called Status Coup, and um, he does a lot of journalism, a lot of, you know, investigative reporting. He actually goes on the ground to cover important stories. As a small operation, I think they do a significantly better job than every mainstream media outlet in the country combined. So um, one of the things he did recently is he took to the streets to talk to people who are now homeless, who lost their homes as a result of, you know, what's happening with COVID and what happened with the economy as a result of COVID. Uh, One of the places he stopped was Louisville, Kentucky. And he's going to talk to somebody who's on the field dealing directly with this issue of homelessness. And there's a little bit of bombshell news here that really slipped under everybody's radar. Um, And it exposes effectively the fraud that are the protections and the help that was supposed to be coming for people who are struggling during this economic downturn and this depression. Take a look. The loopholes are so large that landlords were still able to evict based on a number of reasons. And so while landlords could not evict uh, ostensibly uh, for non-payment of rent, they could evict for all sorts of other reasons. And so what we found was a situation where capital was still moving in neighborhoods. Uh, We had massive bailouts for landlords. We had deferred mortgages. And so while capital was still moving, incomes were stalled or, or stagnant. And so it created a situation where a lot of landlords are now sitting on uh, large reserves of capital, and they want, they want to remodel their units. In order to remodel their units, they are participating in mass evictions. And so they're evicting their entire buildings so they can rehab those units and rent them for high, higher rents once COVID is over. Mm-hmm. And so what we found is while, you know, evictions decreased, we still had about 10% of the evictions that normally occur. So... Uh, multiple things here. Number one, that's just the evictions that we know about in Louisville. He said 10%. They could not, I mean, they were fighting just to get the data from eviction courts and city government. It could be more than 10%. But even let's say 10%, that's potentially thousands of people that were evicted in Louisville during the pandemic. He didn't say it in that clip, including in January and February, which is freezing temperatures uh, in Louisville. So, again, we call it the other pandemic, Steve. Where is the reporting outrage on, A, where is the billions of dollars that was supposed to go towards rental relief, but landlords, turned to landlords who, by the way, are with property management companies who buy off city government, uh, i.e. gentrification, where is that money? And, excuse me, isn't it kind of scandalous that all we have heard from the federal uh, government and by their accomplices in the media is, you know, we've been protecting tenants during this moratorium, eviction moratorium. Hey, we're not actually going to look into the details that this thing is flakier than Frosty Flakes. So that's incredible. Let me break this down a little bit further for you or just explain what's going on here. Um, what the expert on the ground dealing with this issue is saying is that, sure, there's technically an eviction moratorium, but the eviction moratorium 
um, is only on the issue of non-payment of rent, they could still evict for other reasons. So there's a giant loophole, and they can still evict. And so they go on to explain they're still evicting about 10% of the people um, that they were compared to before the pandemic. And as Jordan points out, that's potentially thousands of people, that's thousands of people. And he, you know, this is he's looking particularly in Louisville, and and this is the result there. Um, this is probably happening in a bunch of places all over the country. And so the other scandal is, as that expert explained on the ground, landlords would get bailout money, and then they would turn around and mass evict anyway, and then they would try to update their properties to rent it out for higher prices. So do you understand that? They were given bailout money nominally to allow people to stay in their homes, right? So don't evict them. Here's bailout money. But they would take the bailout money, use a loophole to evict people anyway, and then what they would do is update their property so they can then um, rent out those same places for more money. Absolutely astonishing. Astonishing. And Jordan is the one who's on the ground figuring all this stuff out. He doesn't have a massive budget like CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or even, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, whoever, fill in the blank. He's a guy with a YouTube channel, very much like me, except I'm just a political pundit and commentator. He's somebody who's actually doing real reporting. So he's right. Nobody's talking about this. Why is nobody talking about this? This is a huge deal. Billions was allocated to this. And by the way, he goes on to say hundreds of millions of dollars are just flat out missing, missing. And it seems like, you know, listen, similar thing happened with what? The war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq where when they audited it and tried to see what was going on, there's an insane amount of money missing. Insane amount. I mean, this is just people skimming it off the top for sure. So-called defense contractors, the military industrial complex. What is going on here? And people are getting screwed. It's regular people who are getting screwed. And by the way, I recommend everybody go check out his YouTube channel, Status Coup, because he has videos interviewing some of these people who were evicted, and they tell their stories, and their stories are insane because their stories are very often like, you know, hey, I did the thing I was supposed to do, and then they hit me with a mountain of paperwork, and I tried to do the paperwork, and I submitted it, and it didn't get through, and then I was evicted anyway, and, you know, I have health problems. I was evicted in the middle of the pandemic, so on and so forth. This stuff is happening all over the country, and guess what, guys? It's about to get a hell of a lot worse because the moratorium eviction eventually is going to be gone. Or excuse me, the eviction moratorium is soon going to be gone. And when it's fully gone, oh my God, if they actually follow through, there could be a crisis the likes of which this country hasn't seen since the Great Depression. Because remember, I remember covering the numbers from early on in the pandemic, two or three months into the pandemic. Like 30% of people couldn't pay their bills. 30% couldn't make their rent or, you know, uh, pay their mortgage. 30%. Think about how many people that is, man. 30%. So this, and that's why he said, this is why we call it the other pandemic, the pandemic that nobody's really talking about. Man, your government has screwed you royally. And it's a bureaucratic nightmare, and you got greedy landlords and really no checks and balances and regulations on this to make sure that the money's getting to where it's supposed to go and no leadership. And 
it's a giant clusterfuck, man. And people are getting absolutely screwed in the process. I mean, listen, the simplest thing that could have been done was if at the peak of the pandemic they decided UBI, I'm just going to do UBI, $1,000 or $2,000 a month, every month to people. And so it's like a social security check for everybody. And that would have given people enough wiggle room where most of them could have paid their bills, could have made rent. Of course, what do they do? Usually anytime they do bailouts, our corrupt government does top-down bailouts. You know, when 2008 happened with the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession, they rushed in and bailed out the same companies and executives that crashed the economy and ruined their own companies. And then those executives got bonuses, even though they failed at their jobs objectively. So why are you doing top-down bailouts? If you're going to do bailouts, bottom-up is the way to do a bailout. But only a non-corrupt government would do a bottom-up bailout, a bailout of the people. So anyway, massive credit here to Jordan Chatterton. and everybody subscribes to his channel. He's doing real journalism real reporting. And this is super duper, duper important. And again, nobody's talking about it and everybody should be talking about it. Okay, next. Go ahead, move on. And, um, I want to talk about this psychedelics issue because this is amazing. So there's a couple updates on the issue of psychedelics that um, I have for you here. This is really interesting to me. So apparently there's a Canadian psychedelic drug company that's now working on a vaccine for depression. That's sort of amazing. Um, They say diagnosing, preventing, and treating diseases of the central nervous system is at the core of what they're doing here. So let me tell you a little bit about this. It's a Vancouver-based MYND, Mind Life Sciences. Um, They're the company. They're exploring whether depression and other central nervous system disorders can be treated with novel psychedelic drugs, including psilocybin. So the research is going to go on with the University of British Columbia, and it's specifically on major depressive disorder. I mean, this is something that we've seen with all of these recent studies coming out on various psychedelic drugs is that they have tremendous um, medicinal benefits that people dealing with PTSD or anxiety or depression or any of another, any of a number, excuse me, of um, psychological ailments, there's really long-term profound effects and it really helps these people. It sort of helps them um, think about everything in a new way and break through from old patterns of destructive thinking, uh, allows them to be a lot more objective about their place in the world and how petty may, maybe a lot of their, their grievances are. So um, they're, it's cutting-edge technology. They want to try to develop a vaccine to prevent neurological disorders. It, it, it's specifically targeting what they call the neuroinflammatory process before it starts. Now, I have no idea um, how successful this is going to be, obviously, but um, they're also working on delaying Alzheimer's disease and forms of dementia. And again, this is all related to psychedelics. So psychedelics are at the, the core, the heart of how they're going about trying to cure a lot of these things. Now, at the same time this is going on, more states in the U.S. want to study uh, mental health benefits of psychedelics. 
So the research is now becoming more and more widespread. Uh, let me read you a little something here. This is from Axios. More states are opening the door to psychedelics, with seven states already passing laws over the last several months to allow research or decriminalize its use, and another 11 considering similar measures. Snowball effect, maybe that's what's going on there. There's a growing body of research suggesting psychedelic compounds with psychotherapy can be effective for anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and substance use disorder, where other therapies have failed. Now, the reason why a lot of these states are like, we got to research this, is because opioid abuse. There's a lot of opioid abuse. There's a, a, you know, a giant uptick in what's called diseases of despair. There's a lot more suicides. Um, and so state legislatures are looking for new therapeutics, and a lot of them want to exhaustively study on this front. So in November, Oregon became the first state to legalize psychedelics in licensed supervised facilities and decriminalize them everywhere. And in the months following that, several states passed bills to consider allowing the study of the medical risks and benefits of magic mushrooms, um, psilocybin, of course. Uh, and then you have Texas Governor Greg Abbott allowed a bill authorizing the study of psilocybin to become law without his signature on June 18th. I don't know how he did that. But that's hilarious because that's a very Texas thing. They don't want to seem like, I'm pro-drug, but also they don't like the idea of big government, so I guess they just allowed it to become law, and somehow he could do that without signing it. Uh, Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont signed a bill of health initiatives on June 7th that called for the state's Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services to report findings on psychedelics by January 1st of 2022. There's a New York bill, my state, which was introduced on June 1st, that would require the state to establish an institute to investigate the medical potential of substances, including Ibogaine, LSD, psilocybin, and certain other psychedelic drugs. California is considering a bill that would make California the second state next to Oregon to decriminalize psilocybin. So um, this is all really interesting stuff, man. MDMA and and magic mushroom psilocybin have been uh, granted what's called breakthrough therapy status by the FDA, uh, which is huge, huge. That's, you know, a giant breakthrough. And it's signaling a shift on the issue of mental health, that we're sort of stuck. We've been stuck in neutral for a long time when it comes to fighting mental health problems, you know, and this is an attempt to break through that. Psychedelic drug developer ATAI, Atai Life Sciences, is backed by Peter Thiel, and they went public last month. It's one of three such psychedelic companies, including MindMed and Compass Pathways, that have both gone public in the last year. So this stuff is becoming more and more, um, more and more socially accepted. I mean, when you have companies that are going public and this is the stuff they look into, real sea change, man. So listen, this is wonderful. This is an issue yet again where um, we're finally coming to our senses at this late date. I mean, I think all this stuff should be legalized, taxed, and regulated. At the very least, it should be decriminalized federally. And I do think in time we'll get there. I do. Right now the polls are actually not that great on, like, legalizing, taxing, and regulating all drugs. I don't even think it's great on decriminalizing all drugs. But eventually we're going to get there because um, with a lot of issues, you'd be amazed at how fast public opinion can move. We saw it on the issue of gay marriage, for example. We saw it on the issue of legalized weed. The polls just kept going more and more and more and more in a left-wing direction. And I think it's going to happen with this as well. We're just sort of at the beginning now. Um, Let's do it, man. Let's do it. I mean, I know this sounds obvious, but it's also controversial at the same time. The reason why people do drugs is because drugs work. Now, that's not, I'm not giving anybody a green light to get addicted 
and to, you know, stop taking care of their responsibilities. You should still take care of your responsibilities. I hope you don't get addicted to any substances. But there's a reason why, for as long as human beings can recall, human beings have been entering altered states of consciousness, getting drunk, getting high, get going up, going down. They do it because it works. It works. It helps alleviate stresses and anxieties and, you know, I mean, there's healthy ways to do it and there's unhealthy ways to do it, but this idea, this like abstinence idea of just say no and never do anything, it's kind of silly and it's being unmasked as such as we speak and I'm happy for it. Okay, next. So Fox News is continuing to do Fox News things. Um, They invited on somebody who worked at the CIA, and they asked this guy questions on foreign policy as if he's just, you know, an objective, neutral expert. Um, I want to go ahead and show you here what this guy says, and this is his so-called expertise. Look at what he's advocating for. Yeah, Dan, I also want to get your impact or your perspective on what was going on on the Syrian border because rockets have been flying and, uh, you know, there have been some attacks, and uh, I want to get your perspective on that. So when the Trump administration launched that lethal strike against Iranian Quds Force Commander Qasem Soleimani, we established escalation dominance over Iran. And what we're seeing right now is that doesn't transfer to the new Biden administration. We're seeing Iran testing us by using their proxy militias to launch attacks on our troops in Dar Azor and Syria. Uh, Iran wants us out of the region, and that's why they're doing this. And we've gone back now to being in a position where we really need to establish this escalation dominance. And the Biden administration responded with a um, proportional kinetic strike, which killed reportedly four proxy militia uh, members. Uh, But at the same time, I don't think that this is the end. I think we're going to continue to see these uh, tit-for-tat attacks again until we establish some sort of a dominant uh, position in this relationship with Iran. And that has to happen concurrently with whatever diplomatic negotiations are taking place. If we're not strong against Iran, there will be no opportunity for diplomacy. Wow, that is psychopathic. Okay, so uh, let's go through this. I love how he tries to make it sound intellectual to say, bomb them more, kill more people. He says, the previous administration established escalation dominance. Established escalation dominance is how he's describing the illegal and unconstitutional murdering of a foreign general and military leader. He casually describes it in like a surgical way as if it's like, you know, This is intellectual. Puts an intellectual veneer over the illegal assassination of a foreign military leader. He established escalation dominance by violating international law and U.S. law and illegally killing um, and massively escalating with Iran over the killing of Qasem Soleimani. So notice he flipped everything on its head. He's like, we killed Qasem Soleimani, so it was good under Trump. Now now that these guys are retaliating, um, the problem is you didn't kill enough of them. You honestly think the more people we kill, the less they're going to want to retaliate? How dumb are you? By the way, ain't no escalation dominance, bitch. As soon as we killed Qasem Soleimani, they were immediately attacked right after. They were attacked right after. The attacks are continuing now because when you kill the commander, uh, you know, of a hostile 
military or group of fighters, they don't tend to react kindly to that. So he also goes on to say Iran is attacking us through their proxies. I don't think Iran has direct control of all these various fighting forces, the Shia militias in Iraq, um, Hezbollah. I don't think they have direct control of all of them. I think that those groups on their own want to attack the United States, and one of the reasons they want to attack the United States is because we killed Qasem Soleimani. I mean, it's amazing. He just gets everything wrong. The causation, it's all wrong. Um, then, by the way, he admits, he's like, at first he says we need to establish escalation dominance. How? By bombing them. Biden bombed Shia militias, killed four people. By, it's, by the way, it's more than four people. There's at least seven who died, and one of them was a kid, by the way. One of them was a kid. This is according to Syrian media, but, hey, I mean, U.S. media is biased in our direction. Syrian media might be biased in, in the Syrian direction. What do I think the truth is? I don't know, but I tend to think it wasn't just, you know, precision bombings that only killed bad guys or whatever. And by the way, it's illegal that we're there in the first place, so you're not allowed to do those bombings. And we weren't defending from an imminent attack, even though they pretend otherwise and said, oh, they attacked our, you know, a, a base we had and zero people died. And those attacks were, again, retaliatory for the Qasem Soleimani thing. So anyway, I digress. Biden killed some of their people and he bombed them. And this guy's like, see, the problem is you didn't establish escalation dominance enough. You needed to kill more of them or a more important one of them. This is psycho, man. This is psycho. He's like, we need to be strong. That's what we need to do. So in other words, keep bombing, keep bombing. He's advocating for directly bombing Iran here, basically. You know what? Biden's already bombed the Shia militias. Uh, Biden's already bombed the proxies for Iran. Now you're saying, basically, bomb Iran or kill another top commander, top military leader or whatever. And then he says, oh, in order to do that's how you, you do that concurrently with like, peace negotiations. You think somebody's going to be willing to... Um, agree to some sort of deal as we are actively murdering some of their top leaders? Is that, does that make it more likely or less likely that there's going to be a peace deal? Of course it makes it less likely. Of course it makes it less likely. But that's the thing. This is all bullshit. This is all CIA bullshit. They just want to overthrow the Iranian government. That's what they want to do. That's what they want to do. It, so, I mean, I, we've gone through this a million times, but guys, it was the United States that violated the Iran nuclear agreement. We violated the nuclear agreement. We pulled out of it. We put sanctions on them when all we had to do was not put sanctions on them and give them back their own money. That's all we had to do under the deal. And according to the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Iran was following the deal perfectly. They weren't violating it. They were doing everything right. And so they followed the deal. We broke the deal. And now what? You think they're going to negotiate with us like we're a good faith partner when we've already proven you can't fucking trust us? Any deal we make is not worth the paper it's fucking written on. And you act like, well, if we, as, as long as we keep murdering a bunch of them while we're negotiating on peace with them, that'll definitely lead to better outcomes. No, son. The more we attack them, the more we illegally kill them or, or commanders that are affiliated with them, the more it's going to lead to retaliatory strikes and a backlash effect. Of course, and I haven't even mentioned the most obvious point, which is, guys, whether or not you like, dislike, agree, disagree with these people who we're killing, they're the on-the-ground forces against ISIS, against ISIS. And also, we're illegally occupying Syria. We're jacking their oil. We're doing sanctions out the wazoo for them. You know, we already used a bogus narrative in the first place when we wanted to go in there to topple Assad. There were all these lies and, and ridiculous claims that have now proven to be false made about him gassing his own civilians, very similar to the weapons of mass destruction thing with Saddam Hussein. So, but this, this is what they say. This is 
on Fox News, the most watched news channel in the country, you have a guy from the CIA basically saying, we need escalation dominance, which means bomb them more. And then somehow that'll lead to more peace? Nonsense. You just want more war. And you want to overthrow that government and put in a U.S. puppet. Just like what was done with the Shah back in the day. In 1953, we overthrew Mohammed Mossadegh, the democratically elected Iranian leader, and we put the Shah into power because the Shah was uh, willing to work with U.S. businesses and allowed uh, the U.K. and the U.S. to basically take a lot of Iran's oil. So, that, I mean, that's what we want to do. We want to have our puppet in there who's kind to the West. And they're going to stop at nothing until they get there. But we're the ones who violated the Iran deal. We're the ones who, um, you know, killed Qasem Soleimani. And everything that's happening now is retaliation for that. So, no, the answer isn't to do more killing. That's obvious. But this is the way this stuff is discussed in discourse in the U.S., and it is beyond toxic. Let's talk about climate change and how destructive this is now. This is out of control. So we're all getting slapped in the face with the reality of climate change now. Um, It's bad, man. It is so bad. So heat records are being absolutely obliterated all over the place. The Pacific Northwest turned into, like, hotter than Phoenix for a while, Um, just shattering records. Parts of Canada as well shattering records. It was so hot that roads were buckling you know, and by the way, I read something incredibly disturbing. Like, I don't know if it's half the houses or, or somewhere around half the houses in Seattle don't have heat. Or excuse me, not heat. Hilarious. Don't have AC. And so you get 115 degree weather and you don't have heat. That's called a lot of people are going to die. That's what that is. So, I mean, this is nightmare scenario. And by the way, guys, Every time one of these things happens, it's always worse than what the previous worst-case scenario was predicted to be. Oh, God. So we've probably already hit the tipping point. We've already hit the point of no return in the sense that now we also need to rely on technology to help try to fix the problem, which none of the technology that we would need to this point is, exists. So, oh, man, this is just terrifying and, and scary in a million ways. Now, I saw that what you're about to see here is a segment on Madagascar. And this really, really puts in stark terms the terrible effects of climate change. It's not just hotter weather. It's not just rising sea levels. It's not just more increased extreme, um, you know, natural disaster events like hurricanes or whatever. It's also this. Now, Madagascar is paying one of the highest prices for climate change, which they have done little to cause. The toughest droughts in 40 years have left thousands on the island on the brink of starvation. Malnourished children and adults are forced to forage for leaves to eat. But aid groups say that the help reaching the island is doing little to stop the situation getting worse. This was once fertile farmland, but now it's a desert. Years of drought have destroyed nearly all of the crops here. Strong winds sweeping away the soil and then sandstorms covering what's left. Entire communities are on the brink of starvation. People here have resorted to eating whatever they can find. 
In the morning, I prepared this plate of insects. I clean them the best I can without any water. For eight months, my children and I have been eating this plant every day. We have nothing else to eat and no rain to grow crops. People here are on the front line of a global climate crisis. Madagascar hardly emits any greenhouse gases, but it's one of the worst victims of climate change. We're facing the worst drought in over 40 years. And this is an area where people depend on their own agriculture, homegrown school meals, smallholder farmers. This is how they live down here. But with drought back to back to back, people can't survive. The cycle of drought is tearing families apart. These two boys orphaned after their mother died of hunger. They've been taken in by another family, but severely malnourished, they're still not getting enough to eat. We have nothing left. Their mother is dead, and my husband is dead. What do you want me to say? Our life centers around looking for cactus leaves to survive. Nearly a million people in southern Madagascar depend on food aid. Some people here walked for hours to get help, but not everyone is healthy enough to make the long journey. Aid organizations are urging that more be done to help Madagascar. Food to feed the hungry mouths, and finally, action on climate change. So now uh, we're talking about drought after drought after drought and starvation, mass starvation. Another one of the underreported aspects of climate change is that there are regions of the world, particularly in the Middle East and also in parts of Asia, that will literally become uninhabitable as a result of climate change and probably not too far in the future. Right now they say um, by the end of this century, but it might be even sooner because, again, every time we go back and look at these things, it's worse than the worst-case projection. So when you have giant regions being uninhabitable, they have to clear out, and they have to go other places. Where are they going to go? You're going to have a, a, another mass immigration crisis, border crisis, uh, which will then in turn lead to a rise of more xenophobia and more bigotry. Um, it'll lead to fighting over natural resources. Wars over water are coming at some point in the future. Because as we discussed on our last show, um, the southwest U.S. is running out of water. And by the way, they're also growing at the same time. Like Las Vegas' population is exploding, and their water sources are like 37% of what they're supposed to be. And it's probably going to keep going down. So we're just sort of crossing our fingers and hoping that if we can serve water enough and eventually break, you know, the drought or, or the, the way the weather is, then maybe it'll work out. But this is all terrifying, man. It absolutely is. And it's just such a weird and crazy thing to think about that some places will surpass uh, the wet bulb temperature, which is the term that's used to describe places that are just no longer um, suitable for humans to live because it's just too hot. The time to act was decades ago. But at this late date, I mean, it is just, so beyond obvious that we need a Green New Deal. We need to be aggressive on this stuff. And by the way, if we were intelligent, we would look at this as an opportunity, an opportunity to do a New Deal and focus on green and renewable technology and jobs 
and also lead the world with the you know, impending patents on the technology that's needed to fight back against climate change and move towards clean energy. So, but we're not doing that. We're dragging our feet. Even under Democratic administrations, not much is getting done. It's bad, man. It's bad. And human beings, you know, we're very, very adaptive. So when something happens, we could sort of, when it's a matter of necessity, we change course. But until we're at that point where it's necessity, we always drag our feet, drag our feet, drag our feet. And this is one of those things where we, it really was a necessity decades ago, but we didn't do enough. But at some point, it's going to be too late, and it might already be too late. So that means not only do we need to do the right things um, to stop further emissions, but also we need to come up with some sort of technology to get us moving in the reverse direction. So I don't like to be a pessimist, but this is one of those stories where it's hard to not let my pessimism show because we human beings are disastrously off base with how we're moving forward. All right, next. Do a couple more for you. So here we go. Here we go. Um, We have a great fact here that shows you how rigged the system is. At least 9 million Americans thrown out of work by the pandemic didn't receive any unemployment benefits. U.S. Unemployment Rescue left at least 9 million without help. And then they say red tape, fraud prevention efforts, and overwhelmed agencies left many Americans without benefits. Now, think about the narrative that the media is pushing and the politicians are pushing. They're saying that the opposite is the problem. Oh, my God, if anything, people got too much money. People got too much money. They got stimulus payments, and they got unemployment checks. And, um, hey, that's why there's a worker shortage. It's not that the jobs don't pay a living wage and they should pay a living wage and then they'd get applications. That's exactly what it is. But it's all, no, blame uh, the workers, blame regular people because they got a couple checks and now they're just sitting at home because they're just lazy. Utter nonsense. So everybody talks about that side of the equation, right? Some people got more money than they even needed and they're saving it. Some people say that. That's what the media says. That's what a lot of politicians say. I haven't heard anybody bring up this fact, that actually, wait a second, maybe the help wasn't nearly enough. Maybe a one-time stimulus check wasn't nearly enough. Maybe the giant loopholes in the unemployment system are a bigger problem. Nine million people thrown out of work and didn't receive any unemployment benefits, even though they desperately needed it. 30% of people a couple months into the pandemic couldn't make rent. This is a crisis. This is a crisis, and that's why the answer was UBI. You needed to pay everybody every month, recurring, either $1,000 or $2,000 a month. That's what you needed to do, and they didn't do it. So I just want you to think about how the media frames everything from the side of big business. Because they quote, they've done all these stories where they quote these uh, corporate leaders, these executives, and the corporate leaders are bitching about how, I can't get enough work. And so everybody's blaming regular Americans and regular workers. Well, guess what, man? As we've discussed on this show, there are countless examples of smaller businesses. There was an ice cream shop, I believe, in Pittsburgh. There was a, a chain of five restaurants or five different restaurants under the same umbrella in Charlotte and Charleston, I think. And 
they raised their wages to $15 an hour, came up with a new incentive structure with the payment where they could get more tips on top of that as well. And in the case of the ice cream shop, they got so many applications they lost count, they had to stop counting. And in the case of the other one, um, they went from being well below capacity to basically filling up like that. And people applied and wanted the jobs. And so when you raised the wages, people wanted to get back to work. Also, by the way, as I've told you guys before, even in an instance where they didn't, let's say, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think when people want to reevaluate their lives and determine what would make them the most happy and what to do in the future, even if that takes a year, I think that's okay. I think it's okay. I think people needed that space and that time to be able to determine what to do. And I don't look at that as just this is a lazy person and they should be kicked back into the workforce to do a miserable, miserable job that they don't like. But that effectively was the implication of everybody in the media and all the politicians who were talking about this. Shut up, get them all back to work, pay them less than a living wage, and let's you know, not think about this anymore. That's insane. That's insane. And that's anti-worker, and that's against regular Americans' interests. So they should have paid them more. There should have been a UBI. Guys, we, we already went over this, but there's that study from Stockton, California on UBI. And, it, and that one, it was small, too. It was only, people got, only got $500. And guess what? Only like 2% of the money that people got went to like vices, things that you look at and go, I don't know about that, like gambling or lotto tickets or whatever. Most of the money went to the things that you'd expect it to go to if you're a responsible adult. It went towards, you know, rent and food and the electric bill. And by the way, one story from that study is a guy was working a job that he hated and getting that $500 a month gave him the wiggle room to be able to take a day off to go find a better job that he likes, and he got the job and he's happier now. These are all good things. Is bad. Nine million people slip through the cracks of our system because the system is ruthless against poor people and working people. It is. It is. All these things that we do to avoid red tape and fraud prevention and, um, you know, all the ways we try to make it more difficult to give people more um, hoops to jump through, I think those are terrible. I think those are bad things. It should have just been a universal check. It should have been recurring. It should have been social security for all, and we'd be in a much better place now. But now we all know if they did that, let's say they did UBI, social security for all, the media would have turned around and done all the stories they did about lazy people and put them on steroids. You know, they would have been like, this is ridiculous. Now the unemployment rate went up 2% or whatever, and you got to take away these benefits that people are getting. So in other words, go back to threatening people with poverty if they don't work a job that they despise. That's what the media wants to do. That's as reactionary as it gets, man, and it's really gross. All right, final story of the day. Here we go. This should be a fun one. So I'm going to go ahead and do probably uh, the, one of the single most embarrassing things I've ever done, which is I'm going to go back and react to the literal first secular talk video ever uploaded. Ever uploaded. Um, by the way, there was one, I don't know, like a year ago or so, randomly, the YouTube algorithm must have had some sort of glitch in it because everybody was recommended the Secular Talk first video. Like, everybody who subbed to me was somehow recommended that video. 
And by the way, YouTube algorithm, like, never recommends my shit to new people almost at all anymore. And so, if anything, maybe I should have been happy about the fact that somehow it was recommending my first video for some weird reason. I don't know why. But honestly, I wasn't happy about it because it's fucking embarrassing, man. Nobody wants to see what they did and what they sounded like. And, you know, if you go back in time far enough, it's all weird, you know. And uh, obviously now I look at myself back then and I have so many criticisms. And I'm sure 10 years from now I'll look back to this segment and have so many criticisms as well. So it's always weird doing this. But I figured why not give you guys um, the pleasure of watching my severe embarrassment right in front of your faces so without further ado, here's Secular Talk's first video. Let's watch the whole thing, and then I'll respond. Hello, YouTube. In honor of my first video, I figured I'd go ahead and tell everybody a little bit about what I'm about and about what the site is going to be about. Um, my name is Kyle. I'm 20 years old. I live in New York. Um, I'm a political science major in college. I'm in my uh, sophomore year, coming to the end of my sophomore year. And um, I can safely say that I'm pretty concerned about the direction the country is going in. Not, you know, not just, uh, I'm sure it's not just me. I'm sure a lot of you guys out there listening to this are concerned about the direction the country is going in. And if you are, I want you to please subscribe to my videos. Please subscribe to my videos. What I want to do is make videos about the news, basically, and um, report it to you people who either don't have time to watch the news or want to watch something entertaining about the news. So I'm going to go ahead and give my opinion, tell you how I interpret what's going on and how I think we can make things better. Okay? Um, obviously, we can start by getting George Bush out of office. That would be great. Just peachy. Um, yeah, so that's basically what this site is going to be, political commentary, um, and uh, if you're on the left, you probably want to subscribe to me. I would really appreciate it if you subscribe to me. If you're a Democrat, if you're a liberal, progressive, secular, whatever you want to call yourself, if you're on the left, please, 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 please subscribe. You can subscribe if you're on the right, too, but you'll probably want to rip my head off after the first three videos. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, this is Secular Talk. God damn it, shoot me in the face. <laughs> oh, man. All right, so uh, there's a lot of things I have to say about that. First of all, horrendous audio quality. Horrendous audio quality. Now, it was 2008, so, you know, that's a good excuse. But, you know, the terrible audio quality continued for quite a long time because if you haven't been able to tell on the technical side of shit, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, technological stuff, it's always been like trial and error, learn as you go along, um, you know, ground up type stuff. So the audio quality was terrible. The other thing I noticed is that, man, I was trying so hard to sound more masculine, which is so pathetic. I was trying to be like, hey, guys, this is secular talk. My voice totally is this deep normally. You know what I'm saying? I'm not trying to make my voice sound deeper so I appear cooler. That's not what I'm doing at all. Um, I was actually amazed by that. I have zero recollection of ever trying to like manipulate my voice to sound cooler or whatever, but that is definitely what I was doing there. I was trying to sound cooler by manipulating my voice. Um, the concerned about the country line was kind of funny. When I said, please subscribe, and I was like, please, please, I thought that was incredibly thirsty of me. Um, 
One thing I was absolutely astonished by is when I mentioned how, you know, we got to get George W. Bush out of office. Because I, I genuinely did not remember that when I started doing this, I, it was George W. Bush who was at the end of his time in office. I really didn't remember that. If you asked me and I had to guess, I would have said probably when Barack Obama was in office. No, the first video was recorded when George W. Bush was still in office. That is crazy. I've been allowed, around for a really long time. Um, so, yeah, let's do the math on that. That was recorded in 2008. I'm born in 88, so that means I was 20 years old. Uh, and now I'm 33 years old. So I've been around for a long time. Um, no recollection of that. By the way, the th- reason I think I don't have any recollection of the George W. Bush thing is because, yes, that first Secular Talk video was in 2008, but I only did it as a hobby for a while. And then there was a big break while I worked in the real world at a car dealership when I graduated college. And from like, I don't know, maybe from like 2010-ish to like 2012, most of 2012, I didn't record like any YouTube videos. There was like at least a two-year gap in there. And then late 2012, I I started doing it full-time. Tried to do it full-time, had no idea if it would work, but I started doing it full-time and then it took off. And, you know, I was obviously very thankful for that. But yeah, I forgot about the fact that I started it in 08 as like a hobby and just did videos every now and then for a while. Then there was a big gap and then started full-time in 2012. So that would explain why Bush was still in office at the time, but I'm still astounded by that. That's so long ago. Um, I love the thing where I say, Democrat, if you're a Democrat, liberal, secular, progressive, whatever you call yourself, please subscribe. You're going to want to subscribe. Um, and then I said, if you're you know, conservative, you could subscribe, but you'll probably want to rip my head off after the first three videos. You know, I think that's interesting because you could see my mindset back then more. Back then, I absolutely was more of a partisan cheerleader. Back then, I, I really was playing for a team and um, it, it was obvious. And my commentary for years thereafter, it was still the same thing, kind of cheering for a team. Um, but now, funny enough, I actually have more faith in my abilities that when I say, oh, conservatives, yeah, you could subscribe, but you're not going to like me. I actually have more faith in my abilities that I could reach a broader audience and maybe change some minds on certain issues or, you know, kind of expand the tent. And I would never say something like that today where it's like, oh, if you believe this, you're going to want to rip my head off. Like, no, not really. I think I'll I'll just speak my mind and wherever it leads, it leads. So if I get a lot of people on the left who love me and a lot of people on the right who love me, hey, so be it. That's a positive thing, you know. Um, So it's interesting to see the different mindset. Um, Super awkward, but I will say it's only like 80% as awkward as I expected. I thought it would be a lot more awkward than that. So I guess in a roundabout way, I'm kind of happy about it, but... I have a message for YouTube, for the love of God. Yes, I'd love for you to recommend my stuff and recommend it a lot, but not like my creepy first video or like awkward old stuff. Do like important, interesting, intelligent, substantive stuff from recently. Please, for the love of God. But they're, they're definitely not going to do that. All right, guys. I love y'all. I'll talk to y'all soon. Everybody have a great rest of the day. Peace.